Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Barbershop Sports Talk. Wherever you are, however you may be listening, I want to thank you for making me and this show part of your day, whether it be via WJCU, SoundCloud, iTunes, or the Google Apps Podcast. Me, me, your host, Daryl Lane, wants to thank you for making me and this show part of your day. Great show today. Also, by the way, first ever show on WJCU, John Carroll, the radio station. I'm really excited about that. Got the podcast on, recording this on Thursday. It's going to air Saturday. Got a lot of stuff to talk about. We're going to have Sam Fortier on. He's a beat writer who covers the Los Angeles Chargers. He's going to talk a little bit about the Chargers season. I'm going to have that up around the middle of the show. But first, here's where I want to start before we get into football. Because Sunday, we're going to have two great games. NFC Championship game, AFC Championship game. On the AFC side, we're going to have the Kansas City Chiefs, led by Patrick Mahomes, star-studded young player, second year in the NFL, first year starting, versus Tom Brady and Bill Belichick on the AFC side. NFC side, Jared Goff, Sean McVay, the Los Angeles Rams, that young super team with Marcus Peters, Aaron Donald, and all of them against Drew Brees, Sean Payton, and the New Orleans Saints. That's going to be a good game. We have two very high-level championship games going on. It's not like last year when we had Case Keenum and Nick Foles in the AFC, in the NFC Championship game, and we were like, oh my gosh, we're seeing two quarterbacks. Most of us don't even know who they are. <laughs> and in the AFC side, we're seeing Tom Brady versus Blake Bortles. And we're like, who's Blake Bortles? Blake Bortles is on the bench this year. Case Keenum struggled. Nick Foles, iffy. So quarterback play is going to be way better this year. Way better this year. I promise you that. But we will get into that in my predictions a little later in the show. Here's where I want to start. Kyrie Irving, um, outspoken guy left the Cleveland, left the Cleveland Cavaliers, left LeBron James because he wanted to be the guy. He wanted to be on his own. He wanted to branch out. Now, now it's interesting. After the Boston Celtics beat the Toronto Raptors, on Wednesday, Kyrie offered some comments, and he told the media that he called LeBron James to kind of apologize. I'm going to play you this clip. I've been there in the championship. I've tasted it, but I can't expect that they're going to get it right away either. So it was a big deal for me because... I had to uh, call Bron, you know, and tell him, like, you know, I apologize for being that young player that wanted to everything at his, you know, at his fingertips. And I wanted everything to uh, be at, you know, my threshold. I wanted to be the guy that led us to championship. I wanted to be the leader. I wanted to be all that. And, you know, the responsibility of being the best player in the world and leading a team is something that's not meant for many people. And Bron was one of those guys that came to Cleveland and tried to really show us show us what it's like to win a championship and it was hard for him and uh sometimes getting the most out of the group it's not the easy easiest thing in the world and um like i said only few are, are meant for it or chosen for it and you know i feel like the best person to call was him because you know he's been in this situation you know he's, he's been there with me where i've been the young guy of, you know being a 22 year old kid and you know wanting everything wanting everything right now you know coming off an all-star year starting and then you know this, this heck of a presence comes back and now i gotta adjust my game to this guy and um, you know you take it personal but at the end of the day he just wants what's best and he has a legacy he wants to leave and he has a window he wants to capture so I think what that brought me back to was like all right how do I get the best out of this group of the success they had last year and then helping them 
realize what it takes to win a championship. Dang. You know what I thought? You know, I thought of an old saying. You know, sometimes you never know what you had till you lost it. Uh, sometimes we people don't think about that. You don't think about it. I don't think about that. We don't think about the bigger picture in terms of that. Uh, I, I can think of, you know, at a young age, I was always, I would always tell my mom, right? I'd always be like, Mom, you know, I want to be a man. You know, I want to do this. I want to live on my own. I want to do all this stuff by myself. And then my mom's like, Daryl, right? You know how hard being adult, an adult is? You know, when you're an adult, you have family, you have kids. You know, you know what kids are? You know, kids cost money. You know, college tuition <laughs> is very expensive. And trust me, I do realize that. It is very expensive buying your own clothes. It's very expensive, you know, paying taxes, you know, having a house, paying mortgages, car notes. All that stuff is expensive that encompasses being an adult. And I'm learning that now as I'm branching out from my family, my mom, my dad, and I'm becoming an adult, right? And then I'm like, oh, you know, you know, you know, I, I kind of want that independence, but mom, you throw me a couple extra bucks there. You know, I'd appreciate it. So, so it's well, once you leave something, you appreciate it more. And I, and I think Kyrie's kind of embodying that. Kyrie knows. Now, when the Boston Celtics lose, who gets the blame? It's Kyrie Irving. Kyrie Irving gets the blame. The Boston Celtics were in Game 7 of the Eastern Conference Finals, one game away from going to the NBA Finals. And they did it without Kyrie Irving. So the team is worse this year with Kyrie. Kyrie's going to get the blame. And it's not always fair. Kyrie Irving's averaging 23 points per game. He's shooting 49% from the field. Yet the team is fifth in the Eastern Conference. Teams like the 76ers, the Indiana Pacers, the Toronto Raptors, the Milwaukee Bucks are all ahead of them. Who would have thought that coming into this NBA season? Kyrie is now learning that it's not easy being the guy everybody looks up to, the guy that everybody admires, the guy that everybody looks for answers. And sometimes it's hard being that guy when you don't have the answers. <laughs> So I also think it's a great life lesson for Kyrie. It's a great life lesson for everybody. Great life lesson for everybody. Now, here's where I want to go. I want to talk about football, right? Sunday, we're going to have some great championship games. Like I said, we're going to start with the AFC championship game. The New England Patriots, come on. You, you know this. I know this. Do we really believe that in sub-zero weather, that a second-year player in Patrick Mahomes and a coach in Andy Reid, who's had his share of postseason struggles, are going to beat... Bill Belichick and Tom Brady. The greatest duo the NFL has ever seen. Eight straight AFC Championship game appearances. Five Super Bowl victories. Eight Super Bowl appearances. Multiple division titles. Do we really believe that? All of you who doubted the New England Patriots just last week saying the Chargers were going to win. Well, the Chargers got shellaxed. Phillip Rivers looked dazed, confused, didn't know what to do. And the rest of the team followed suit. Hear anything about Joey Bosa, one of their star pass rushers? Did we hear anything about Melvin Ingram, one of the, the, the Chargers' other star pass rushers? No, because that's what New England does. They take your best players out of the game. Travis Kelsey torched the Indianapolis Colts in the divisional round. Do you really believe that Bill Belichick will lose because he lets Travis Kelsey torch them? Do you think Bill Belichick will allow the Patriots to lose because Tyreek Hill's going all over the field? No. Those two will be eliminated from the game. It'll come down to guys like Sammy Watkins. Can those guys make the plays? How's Patrick Mahomes going to feel when, for the first time this season, it's high stakes? He knows he's going to have to match Tom Brady. Because while the Chiefs' defense played well against the Colts and Andrew Luck, Andrew Luck ain't Tom Brady. <laughs> Tom Brady's a different dude, a different guy. Now, here's what we know wins in the NFL. And especially, we saw this over the divisional, the divisional weekend last week. Here's what wins. And, and all the teams that won had the, these things in common. The Saints, Patriots, Chiefs, Rams. Now, what did they have? Home field advantage, one. Two, they had good offensive coaching. Patriots have Josh McDaniels. The Saints have Sean Payton. The Los Angeles Rams have Sean McVay, 
Kansas City Chiefs have Andy Reid, star offensive coach. They also have good head coaching. Sean Payton's a good coach. Bill Belichick's a good coach. Andy Reid's a good coach. Sean McVay's a good coach. Veteran quarterback play. Saints, Patriots, Drew Brees, Tom Brady. And very good running games. Los Angeles Rams rushed for over 200 yards against the Dallas Cowboys in the divisional round. Sony Michelle had over 100 yards rushing against the Los Angeles Chargers. New Orleans Saints, Alvin Kamara, M- Melvin Ingram, Mark Ingram, excuse me, combined for over 100 yards rushing. Chiefs, too, over 100 yards rushing. You see a theme? Have to be able to run the football. Now, let's look what the Patriots do. They're fifth. Fifth in the NFL in time of possession. What does that tell you? You can grind out games. You can eat the clock. You can run the football. You can slow the pace of the game down. You know, if you have the ball longer, you know, it takes talent more out of the game. It takes talent more out of the game. It limits Patrick Mahomes' chances to get explosive plays down the field with guys like Tyreek Hill and Travis Kelsey, Sammy Watkins. It limits those explosive plays, those huge 20, 30-yard bombs. Penalty yards. Patriots, second fewest in the NFL. Like I said, well-coached team. Bill Belichick, they don't make mistakes. They will not beat themselves. Kansas City Chiefs, guess what they are in penalty yards? 23rd. Big difference. Third down defensive percentage. The percentage of how many times an offense is able to convert on your defense. The Patriots are 16th in the NFL. The Chiefs are 22nd. Patriots are a little bit better at getting off the field on third down, which is very important for a defense, especially when you're trying to get off the field on third down so you can give the defense a break, one, and two, get the ball back to Tom Brady. Rushing. Patriots were fifth in the NFL in rushing yards this year. The Chiefs were 16th in the NFL in rushing yards. And let me remind you, for most of the year, the Kansas City Chiefs had Kareem Hunt, one of the best running backs in the NFL. Yet they still didn't run the ball. Bleeding the clock out, running the ball, taking time away from the game, that's important in playoff games. You don't want to give a guy like Tom Brady another chance, another crack on the field. You don't want that. You want to bleed out the clock. You want to win with the ball in your hands. The Patriots win. They have the edge in head coaching. All of us will take Bill Belichick over Andy Reid. They have the edge in rushing. They're more willing to run the ball. They have the edge in time of possession. They control the clock better. They have the edge in an offensive mind. They have a Josh McDaniels that can go up against an Andy Reid in terms of offensive coaching. Situational football. Better on third down. Experience. Tom Brady and Bill Belichick have been to eight straight AFC Championship games. Last year, Patrick Mahomes was sitting on the bench. It's a different level of experience. Yes, the Chiefs are at home. But you can't tell me this isn't the biggest game Patrick Mahomes has played in his life because this is the biggest game. Up to date, Patrick Mahomes has played in his life. High school, college, pro. The biggest game Patrick Mahomes has ever played in his life. Let's see how he does. I know how Tom Brady's going to do when Tom Brady's in a big game. Saw him come back 20 down in a Super Bowl a couple years ago. How's Patrick Mahomes going to be when he's in a big game? That's the question I think Tom Brady will edge out Patrick Mahomes. Now, coming next after the break on Barbershop Sports Talk, we're going to have Sam Fortier, Chargers beat writer, Los Angeles Chargers beat writer for the Athletic, going to have him on, going to talk a bevy of stuff with Sam. Come next after the break on Barbershop Sports Talk. Barbershop Sports Talk, and we have a very special guest with us today, Sam Fortier, Chargers beat writer for the Athletic.com. How are you doing, Sam? I'm doing well. How are you? 
And now, Sam, the first time I want to talk to you is you cover the Chargers and, you know, they beat the Ravens in the wildcard round. Then they go to New England and they kind of, for lack of a better term, get their butts whooped. Explain to me just how that all materialized. Was the team not as confident going into New England? What happened when such a talented team just didn't show up? Right, I think the big problem for the Chargers was that they went into New England to face two men, Tom Brady, Bill Belichick, when those two guys had uh, a week or plus to prepare for them, and they were at home. The Chargers were a great road team all year. Until that game, they were 9-0 and when they got on an airplane, but, you know, it's just those guys are the best. Those those two guys in New England are the boogeyman that I think in everyone's closets and, and you know, in the NFL. So that, that, that was just too tough a task to overcome for us. Head coach Anthony Lynn's first year uh, in the playoffs. Now, now, when you talk about you know the New England Patriots being the boogeyman, Tom Brady, Bill Belichick, do you think like the mystique of playing in New England, Foxborough, in Massachusetts, but uh, dur- during January during playoff time, do you think that kind of got to the team a little bit? It's funny you say that because mystique is the is the exact word that was kind of used around the locker room um, all week. Is the mystique something that that, uh, that you have to reckon with? Is it something that's bothering you? I mean. The Chargers, for, for their part, kind of downplayed the whole thing, and they said, hey, you know, that's not something we're worried about. We're just, you know, we're good on the road. We, we have no problem with it. But, I mean, after the game, I was talking to Keenan Allen, the wide receiver, and, you know, I said, you know, when did you kind of understand this game was without a hand? He was like, sure, man, you come in here at halftime, you're down four scores, the Patriots, the Patriots in New England. And just the way he emphasized those words, the Patriots in New England, I mean, everybody knows they're not going to shoot themselves in the foot. Everybody in the locker room said it. So they said it wasn't, but I think on Sunday it showed up that, that at some point that was a factor. How do you – do you think that part of the issue, too, because you mentioned, like, just the, the fact that, you know, Brady's able to watch the Chargers defense on film for an extra week. Belichick's able to see, you know, what's the offense doing on film for an extra week. You think part of it was that Anthony Lynn, Phillip Rivers, and the Chargers, they didn't – they weren't as prepared because they had to play a wild card game? Right, I think because they had to play a wild card game and because they had to go on the road, I mean, obviously you're going to get your film in on the plane, you're going to get everything in, but but I just, I, I think it's a, it shows, you know, why, I mean, look at the look at the, uh, the conference championship round we got right now. All four teams had their buys, they all played at home. I think, um, you know, it, it's just so important um, for those, you know, for, for in the NFL to play all season. That's what makes the NFL, I think, um, one of the most, uh, impactful regular seasons in sports is because once you get that home field, as, as a result of showing, it's so important um, to moving on. And I think that ultimately, um, it, it wasn't the sole reason the Chargers lost, but I do believe it was it was a significant factor. Okay, we, so okay after the game's over, you know they, they get beat thoroughly. They're going home. What do you think is Anthony Lynn's message to the team? You know he's trying to say we had a good season. There's no, there's a lot to look up for. But you know guys like Philip Rivers, they don't care about that. They want to win a Super Bowl. What do you think his message was to the team as a whole after the game? Anthony Lynn's message to the team after the game was really this is a culture thing. This is a thing we can build on. You know, uh, the year before Anthony got here, five wins. The year Anthony got here, nine wins. This year, twelve wins. He it talks about making that incremental progress, showing what they can do. This year, I think, you know, Melvin Ingram after the game said, shit, we didn't accomplish anything, we didn't win the Super Bowl, we accomplished nothing. But I think, you know, for the non-zero-sum players, the non-zero-sum coaches, which I believe Anthony Lynn is, he understands, you know, his work performance is, is, a, is a binary game, you win or you lose, but he understands the culture turnover, he understands, you know, that his vision is going to take a little bit to implement, and, and he got, you know, he got as far as he did this year, I think, because of that culture that he's built um, in the locker room. And I think it's his philosophy, it's his vision, and now he has a little bit of experience, so that might help for next year. But that, that's definitely what his message was. It's okay, you know, like, we, we did as well as we could. We established an identity on the road. They had aced at their academic any squad, any place. Ultimately, that didn't work out. But I think building that mindset, showing teams, showing those young players on that team okay, we can go into Kansas City, we can go into Pittsburgh and Seattle and all these different places and get wins. That, I think, is, is um, it's not as important as getting the wins when it counts on the road, um, as we saw, but I think it counts for something. Do you think, given uh, the, the way the game went, and even all the the, the way all the while, uh, all the divisional round games went with all the home teams advancing, do you think that having that extra week of film study makes that much of a difference when the team maybe that played in the wild card game might be a better, more talented team? Just having that extra week of film makes that much of a difference. Well, I think it, it's tough to say because they 
they get sort of, of an extra week. You know, they break down both possible matchups that they can get. I'm sure the Patriots were looking at Houston as well as the Chargers. Um, and I know, you know, just from the way kind of the way that they handled things, um, I do believe it's an advantage for the extra time that they get to take. And, you know, they have to go to them, and, and they're not feeling beat up on Monday. I think the rest and, and the uh, the logistical portions are easier. You know, the fact that you sleep in your own bed is, it's a normal week. It's, it's your routine. I think that is more impactful than the film study, but I do also think the film study um, definitely plays a part. Now, how much do you think with, with the time zone difference, you're going from L.A., then you're going to Baltimore, then you're going back to L.A., then you're going from L.A. to New England, you know, a lot of different time zones, you know, the, the body can only do so much. How much do you think that had an impact? Uh, I mean, again, those, those, the players really downplayed that effect, and I and I actually believe them on that one. Uh, I mean, even as a, you know, as a writer, I was getting, I mean, I didn't have that chartered flight, obviously, that, that was mostly pretty nice, but, you know, you get up and you go and you get up and you go, and it's just kind of a time thing, you know, it's, uh, you know, you get there, you leave on, right after the game on Sunday in Baltimore, you get back to LA, you go to sleep at a normal time, and then you, you get back to New England on uh, on Friday, and you have kind of Saturday to adjust. And so I, I think that wasn't too much of a factor, um, in my opinion. I know Vegas might have thought it was, but, but I didn't think it was too much, actually. When you look... Uh, when you look at Philip Rivers, he's a guy that I think kind of gets disrespected in the grand scheme of things. Uh, in my opinion, a Hall of Fame talent. Do, do you think that this loss kind of... Because I think this is one of the better teams Philip Rivers has ever had. Do you think this hurts Phillips' legacy in, in, in a way? A lot of people were talking about, you know, this playoffs kind of being Phillips' legacy. And I, I disagree with that notion, especially with this loss. You know, anytime you go into New England against Tom Brady... Phil Rivers was 0-7, now is 0-8 against Tom Brady lifetime. I don't see how this really diminishes your legacy because I don't think they were expected to win that game. They definitely, you know, they were four and a half point dogs in Vegas. And, and I think just logistically you have to think about it and, and say, okay, this might be one of the more talented teams Rivers has had. It might be a really successful road team. But at the same time, I mean, it's, it's New England at home. And the fact that he hasn't gone to a Super Bowl, does that hurt his legacy? Yes, unquestionably. But does this do damage to his legacy? I don't believe so. How would you describe Philip Rivers' season this year? Uh, probably the best year of his career, in my opinion. But 37 years old to do what he did. Um, he had 11 interceptions, which was second lowest in his career. Um, he really, you know, he's, he's become such a good game manager. Obviously, you look at some quarterbacks, Patrick Mahomes, kid inexperienced, but he just does it all. Um, same thing, you know, probably with Sean Watson and some of those guys. Like, like the guys who whose bodies are arms, especially Mahomes' arm, you know, the physical capabilities that he has, that sort of covers up for, you know, maybe he's not, uh, he, he, he hasn't spent as much time diagnosing the game. Philip is, I think, the opposite. He knows his arm strength is fading. You know, he knows that he's got to get the ball out quick because he's going to get those hits, you know, add up. Um, so I think Phillips, what he's been able to do in terms of, getting the ball out fast, uh, making the right decisions, kind of keeping in check uh, the gunslinger inside him that, that for so many years, you know, created the greatest successes and the deepest disappointments for the Chargers. Um, you know, throwing it a double coverage when he felt like he had to make up the ball, you know, make up all the lost yards on one play and turn the ball over and kind of give it away the game. His ability to rein those attributes in um, to kind of follow Anthony Lynn's philosophy, Anthony Lynn. Bill Parcells' disciple, you know, don't turn the ball over, don't beat yourself, let the other team beat themselves. His ability to kind of work into that scheme, work through some tension that he had when Anthony first arrived, that's, I think, everything that added up uh, to make this probably one of the better years of his career. Now, Phillips, 37, as you mentioned, you know, he's not a spring chicken, but there's guys like Tom Brady, Drew Brees, who are at 40 or nearing that, that are playing their best football ever. How does Phillip Rivers take care of himself? Do you think Phillip Rivers can play into his 40s? Right, I, I do. If he wants to, I know Philip Rivers. In this season, he has um, he's really kind of hinted at his mortality. You know, I know I don't have you know too many years left. He started 200 consecutive games, and I know I won't make it to 300. Um, so he kind of hinted that it's, you know sooner or later. I mean, Philip loves to get football, but he's run. But sooner or later, you know, the end is going to come for him too. Um, when that is, I, I don't think we know. Um, whether he plays to 40, I think that's definitely very possible. I mean, his routine. Is pristine, and obviously the NFL has, has new rules every year. 
to keep these quarterbacks upright, to keep them uninjured, um, and ensure that the faces of their game continue to, to stay healthy and, and put butts in the seats and, and get the television ratings up. So I, I, that's definitely a part of it, but Silver's routine. He's a very regimented guy. He, uh, you know, he eats right, he exercises. He, I think he is uh, a good candidate of anyone to play until he's 40. Do you think the Chargers, when will the Chargers start looking at a contingency plan at quarterback? I mean, that's a great question. That's a, that's a good question, right? I mean, the Chargers have never historically breached the you know, top three rounds of the NFL draft to take their successor. Uh, when that happens, I think it's going to be a very interesting political move because General Manager Tom Telesco at some point is going to say, and probably before, I, I would imagine, before Philip Rivers himself concedes that he's ready to go, um, how that situation plays out politically, just because Philip is such a, an institution of the Chargers, and because Tom Telesco has, has the team's grander scheme in mind, it's going to be a very interesting play about when he decides to, to make that decision. And I think that's probably coming in the next... I, I don't imagine it'll be in this year's draft, but I do imagine it'll be in either next year's or the, or the following year. And I know you know, 2020 is when it, it's supposed to be a pretty good quarterback class headlined by Clemson's Trevor Lawrence. So what ends up shaking out that year, I think, is going to be fascinating. Now everybody's talking about like offensive minds in the NFL. Everybody's talking about Sean McVay, uh, Matt Nagy, Kyle Shanahan, but nobody, nobody talks about Anthony Lynn and the, and the fantastic job he's doing. Philip Rivers, the offensive, what he's done with the team as a whole. How underrated is Anthony Lynn as a head football coach? I think Anthony Lynn is, is underrated nationally, and part of that I think is because it's hard to find him uh, on the Chargers, and the Chargers are a tough market. Um, you know, they're they're way way down on on the market list of priorities. Um, so definitely the, the situation he's in does not help. Um, but he's not an offensive, you know, he's not an offensive mastermind like Sean McVay, and he's not, you know, he, he doesn't uh, have, he's not a fabulous personality. He's not going to, you know, get too many quotes on Sports Center or whatnot. Um, but I think for him, the thing that makes him a good coach is, if people talk about his militaristic style, his, uh, his player-first approach, his um, just kind of the, the sternness and the, and the regimented, attitude he brings to this team and uh, players say that you know Mike McCoy the, the previous head coach that they used to think that he would uh, he would you know have too many meetings or he would repeat things and that's not the case with Anthony Lynn I think he's just a good leader um, that's something the Chargers look for GM Tom Telesco told me um, that was one of the biggest uh, attributes they looked for because they knew they were going to be you know, moving for San Diego, and uh, they needed a, a, a leader, a strong presence to kind of lead them to that change. So you think Anthony Lynn's greatest asset, what makes him special, is his leadership? Yes, I, I do. I think that, more than schematics, more than personnel, I think his relationships and his leadership uh, is what sets him apart. Now, and I find this interesting, right, because I, I think the, the dynamic duo of Joey Bosa and Melvin Ingram is really interesting. Can you talk about how good those two are on, on both edges of the defense? Yeah, I mean, obviously when you have both those guys who also this year I think made significant jumps in their run-stopping ability, um, you know, and, and give Smith the um, Chargers defensive line coach. He's a true believer in um, kind of flexibility uh, along the defensive line, so making kind of bump those guys in, you know, move them out. He really is all about uh, making sure Bosa and Ingram can play anywhere on that line. And uh, I was talking to a defensive line expert um, last week, and he said the biggest thing that those guys do is they just compress a quarterback's time. Um, so instead of having maybe two and a half seconds or three seconds to get the ball out when you snap it, those guys make it 2.25 or two seconds. Um, they just get you so quick. And, and the fact that they have, you have both on the line means you can't double them both or the pressure's going to come from the interior, it just, it just really makes the offense always play a numbers game, always think about where we do we need the tight end, which tight end do we need to double, which guy with. Um, so those two, you know, just the knots they put offensive coordinators in, that's the biggest thing I think they bring to the table. Now, and I want to talk about Derwin James. Derwin James, I think he was like the 15th or the 17th overall pick, I don't remember correctly, but he was in the teens somewhere. Uh, 10? 10? 17. 17. Okay, I was right. 17. Okay. 17th overall pick, comes in at safety. Talk about his season and how he was able to develop from start to finish. Yeah, so he came in and it wasn't even clear that he was going to be a starter. Uh, and he finished the year as an all-pro uh, rookie, or an all-pro safety as a rookie. 
Uh, ben, it was a dramatic uh, and pretty apparent from the get-go jump. I mean, I'm training camp, but in week one, you know, he has a sack, and he has a long pass defense where he catches up to from Oregon State up to Anthony Thomas, who's, you know, one of the quickest guys in the NFL, and breaks up a long pass from Patrick Mahomes. We didn't know what Patrick Mahomes was going to become then, but uh, just, the, just from week one, he sort of showed his ability to play any position. The Chargers lines him up at, at free safety, strong safety, nickel linebacker, middle linebacker, defensive line. I mean, the dude really did everything. Um, he's a physical physical player. Uh, he's a high-energy guy. Um, and he really absorbed lessons from box safety, Julio Adai, and, and uh, safety special linebacker, Adrian Phillips. He really absorbed what those guys told him. And they talked about, those two guys in particular talked about Derwin in meeting rooms and watching film. And, uh, just a gifted just a gifted player um, who kind of naturally gets the game and has the, has the physicality and the body that, you know, when they play Kansas City, you know, he would cover Travis Kelsey when they played San Francisco, he covered George Kittle, those dynamic tight ends, the bigger, faster guys who are becoming, you know, popular in the NFL. So he has that flexibility to really be the modern NFL prototype for a guy that you want in coverage. Um, I think that's really what makes him so special. Now, Gus Bradley's been a really good defensive coordinator for this team. Do you think eventually he's going to start getting head coaching opportunities? Well, I think this cycle, uh, the fact that if you were, you know, second cousins with Sean McVay, you were, you were getting job offers, uh, hurt him. I mean, obviously the defensive coach, but I would imagine, I mean, he had a lot of height built up after the Ravens game. They used seven defensive backs. They went quarters the whole game, uh, which is pretty remarkable. But uh, after the New England game, when their defense got thoroughly shredded, um, the buzz definitely died down about him. So it depends on, on which Gus Bradley defense shows up next week, uh, that determines that they, or next year, that shows up. Uh, if he's going to get head coaching opportunities or not. Now, just give me a grade for the charge of this whole season. Just sum up the whole season. Give me a grade for the team. I'd say A minus. I think they, they maximize their potential almost as much as it could be. Um, they had significant weaknesses in the linebacking core. It was devastated by injury. Uh, they had no real free safety. Uh, Julio died strong safety played there. Struggled. They asked him to play out of position, to be fair, uh, but he did struggle. Uh, they had some weaknesses on the offensive line. I'm thinking right tackle. I mean, this team had flaws, but I think they maximized the potential as well as they could have. Um, so that's why I would say A-minus. And what are the expectations for the team coming into next season? What do you think we're going to see from the Chargers coming into next year? Well, considering their free agent class, which is really Adrian Phillips, who was, who was a, a linchpin of their defense, you can be wrong, Tyrell Williams, who was their number two wide receiver. All their free agents are, are complementary players that they can replace in the draft or, or you know, moderately – with moderate money in free agency, this team's this team's expectation now with the foundation that they have, the rookies and the and the contracts that they have on the books right now, like it should be Super Bowl and Boston season. That's that is, I think, very clear. Sam, I want to thank you for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you for having me, man. I appreciate it. This, this is a good time. Now, cut them next after the break on Barbershop Sports Talk. I'm going to tell you why. One team. Is, has been peaking towards the NFC Championship game and why the other has not been peaking towards the NFC Championship game. Can't wait to see who those teams are. Come next after the break. Once again, I do want to thank Sam Fortier for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Uh, has a lot of the guys very busy. There's a lot of stuff you can be doing. I appreciate him spending time to come on the show and talk a little bit of football with me, talking about the Chargers with me. Appreciate it. Hope to have him on again. Uh, I would lo- love, love for that. So, so here's what I want to talk about. You know, th- this Antonio Brown story has just took another interesting turn, another interesting twist. Uh, just when you think this won't get any weirder. And, and for those of you who don't know, I'll explain this one more time what's been going on with Antonio Brown. Uh, all-pro wide receiver for the Pittsburgh Steelers. So I guess there was a dispute with his quarterback, Ben Roethlisberger. Throws a football at Ben Roethlisberger. Then uh, leaves practice. You know, it's kind of the APB outs for Antonio Brown. That doesn't show up to work, doesn't show up to practice. Owners can't get a hold of him. GMs can't get a hold on a hold of him. Coaches can't get, get a hold on, of him. Like, like, Antonio Brown just goes off the grid. Then Antonio Brown, the... On Sunday, finally shows up. 
He warmed up and he's at the, like he's gonna play. And Mike Tomlin, that coach for the Pittsburgh Steelers, was like, you know, hell no. Nah. I mean, like, you're not coming. <laughs> you don't respond to any of our calls, any of our texts. He's like, you don't call, you don't write, and you think you just gonna show up and play? He's like, nah. He's like, sit your butt down. So Antonio Brown doesn't play. Then Antonio Brown leaves at halftime. I, I guess to beat the traffic. <laughs> he leaves at halftime because he has to beat the traffic. And now there's all this reports, you know. The owner, uh, Art Rooney's talking about, we're not going to trade him, we can't trade him because of the cap hit. Uh, my Mike Tomlin's talked about it a little bit. Ben Roethlisberger's like, oh, I didn't know me and AB had any problems. You know, Antonio Brown's been kind of t- talking to the San Francisco 49ers, like, come on, get me. So so there's been a lot of stuff, a lot of dysfunction going on. But Bruce Arians, who was the off- Antonio Brown's offensive coordinator for a couple of years, kind of chimed in. Uh, I believe he called him a diva to a, another reporter when another reporter asked him about the situation. But this is what he said in this instance. Bruce Arians, now head coach of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, said, this isn't the Antonio that was drafted in 2010, saying because he was the coach when Antonio Brown was a rookie in 2010, he was the offensive coordinator. Then Antonio Brown comes up. This is what Antonio Brown says on Twitter. He says, he didn't draft me. He drafted E. Sanders underscore 10. He's talking about Emmanuel Sanders. Same guy who missed rehab to go on networks to talk about me on situations he has zero clue about. Arians now wears kangoo hats and glasses. Laughing, no, crying emoji, crying emoji. But I'm a diva. Done seen it all. Didn't they say we friends? Stop lying. <laughs> I love with the kangoo hat. Because Bruce Arians does have that little hat thing going on. And then this gets more interesting. Emmanuel Sanders replies to Antonio Brown. He says, with more crying emojis, he says, AB84, Antonio Brown's uh, Twitter name, he says, AB84, you know damn well I didn't travel to LA to talk about you, fam. You're tripping, yo. I want to be an analyst in which you acting foolish was the topic, and I gave my analytical opinion. Get off the gas, yo. You did it to yourself. <laughs> <laughs> he said, get off the gas. Yeah, you did to yourself. Then Brown responds. He says, clearly, they feel indifferent about me. Seeing all these reports, the big interview coming. Watching my teammates, fans, and organizations show me how they really feel. Stay woke. Okay. Now, I don't... I, I believe stay woke. You know, my aunt Gina told me. I, I think stay woke means, you know, you know, stay, stay woke. You know, know what's really going on. Yes, they be saying the snake's in the grass. Everybody's out to get him. Everybody's shady. Which, there might be some truth to that. I, you know, e- Emmanuel Sanders should probably not have come on national TV and criticize Antonio Brown. But then again, Antonio Brown decided to throw football at his co-worker and not show up to work for a week and then think he was going to play in the game, then just leave at halftime. So... In the words of Emmanuel Sanders, Antonio Brown was on the gas and he was tripping. So, <laughs> this can go both ways, but I find this very funny. But in all seriousness, the Steelers need to get rid of Antonio Brown. I think he's starting to become more trouble than he's worth. I also think you can win without a star wide receiver. Look at all the teams that are in the NFC, NFC and AFC Championship game. All the teams that are in the championship games. You have the Patriots. Who's their star wide receiver? Rob Gronkowski can barely run or, or jump. Julian Edelman's a little slot wide receiver. They don't have Josh Gordon anymore. Where's the receivers in New England? Look at the Saints. All they have is Michael Thomas. Michael Thomas is maybe a top 10 receiver. He's not special, I wouldn't say. I think he's more of a system wide receiver than a special talent, like a Julio Jones or an Odell Beckham. Then you look at the Rams. I mean, Robert Woods, he's solid. But, I mean, nobody's thinking Robert Wood's the savior. Same with Brandon Cooks. They're both solid. They're both decent guys. Then you look at the Chiefs. Tyree Kill. Tyree Kill. I will give Tyree Kill. You can say he's an elite receiver. But Tyree Kill is more of a playmaker and more of an elite playmaker than just an elite outside wide receiver like the typical Julio Jones, Odell Beckham Jr. That's more of what Tyree Kill is. So really, I can make an argument. None of those teams have that traditional dominating outside wide receiver like an Antonio Brown. None of them have that. What you need, and I'll keep saying this again, you need a quarterback to win in this league, you need an offensive line, you need a defensive line, and you need a corner. That's what you need. Wide receiver, dime a dozen. Running backs, dime a dozen. Flashy positions, skill positions. 
It's not that I don't have use for them, but they're not my number one priority. Steelers got bigger concerns. They can improve their secondary. They can improve their offensive line. They can get another running back to help out their other their other running back, uh, Connor James. James Connor. James Connor. The other running back who's filled in for Le'Veon Bell. There's a bunch of stuff the Pittsburgh Steelers can do. Also, Juju Smith-Houston is a really good wide receiver. He's probably the best number two wide receiver in the NFL. He can play on the outside. He can play on the inside. He blocks. He does a lot of things. He can run almost every route in the route tree. So Juju Smith-Huster is a great second option that can be a very dynamic first option at the wide receiver spot. So Steelers, if they're smart, they'll trade Antonio Brown, get, get some picks for it, get some value for it, move on, get that cancer out of their locker room. Now I want to talk about peaking in sports. So, so peaking, especially when it comes to sports, is something you can't really, you know, quantify. It, it, it just happens. It happens as you go through the season, right? Uh, peaking is a term that I think is used in wrestling, a lot of sport that I do. It's it's used a lot in terms of just getting peaked, ready to compete optimally for the postseason, right? For, for postseason tournaments. But but peaking can apply to football. It can apply to any sport. It's playing your best at the end, being your best at the end, both physically, mentally, socially, you know, whatever you want to say. Being at your best, your optimal state, the best version of you. And it doesn't mean you have to be the best all, all, your, all, all year long. It doesn't mean you have to go undefeated. It doesn't mean you have to be blowing everybody out. You just have to be the best when it matters most, at your best when it matters most. You know, your baseline might not be as good as other people, but your best might be a lot better than everybody else. And if you can bring your best, your best can carry you to a championship. So that last year with the Philadelphia Eagles. We saw their best. Their best was blowing out the Minnesota Vikings in the NFC Championship game. Their best was Nick Foles outdueling Tom Brady in a Super Bowl. Who would have ever thought that? Tom Brady being outdueled by Nick Foles, who at one point was going to be out the league. But the Saints, and, and, I, and I said this, I, I told many people this, because in about the middle of the season, people were like, Daryl, the Saints. It's the Saints. The Saints are the team. And I was like, no. And my simple reason was, I thought the Saints had peaked. Like, I'm looking at the Saints schedule right now. The Saints go through a... They blow out the Bengals, week 10. Prior to that, week 9, they played the Los Angeles Rams. That was the game where they were destroying the Rams, as a matter of fact. And the Rams kind of came back at the end, like in the in the second half. But the Saints took, you know, took the foot off the gas. They destroyed Philadelphia 48-7. And they had that three, you know, that three-window stretch. And even they had a 10-point win against Minnesota in there, right? They had a four or five-game stretch where they were just utterly dominating. Looked like the best team in the NFL. Then after that, I'm going to say after their Atlanta game, they played Atlanta, they go to Dallas. That's the Thursday night game where they lose 13-10 to the Dallas Cowboys. Then after that, they go at Tampa Bay. One of the worst teams in the NFL, and they only won 28 to 14. Not super impressive. Then they go at Carolina, Carolina Panthers team with Cam Newton on his last legs, bum shoulder, bum body, ended up getting shut down for the rest of the season after that game on Monday Night Football, and they only won 12 to 9. Then they have the Pittsburgh Steelers coming to their house. This was a, I believe, Fox Fox primetime game, Fox primetime game around 4 o'clock on a Sunday. I remember this game. Pittsburgh Steelers. Really should have beat the New Orleans Saints. There was a lot of interceptions. There was a lot of turnovers. There was a lot of fumbles. A lot of stuff that went wrong. Then they play the Panthers again. They lose the Panthers. But, you know, they, they already clinched by that point. They did already clinch home field advantage for the playoffs. So, so you know, they weren't really trying. But still, I mean, they, lose, they lost 33-14 to end the year. Then we go to the divisional round. They play the Eagles. They only won 20-14. And the Eagles got out with a 14-0 lead. And we're really dominating the game. Then the Saints got back in it. But but here's to say this. The Saints have peaked. Perfect example when we're looking at commonality. They blow out the Eagles 48-7. That was their absolute best. Then they play the Eagles again. And it's only 20-14. That is a dramatic difference. 48-7, 20-14. A dramatic difference. The Saints are not optimized. They're not their optimized level right now. And that's going to be dangerous. When they're playing a team 
and the Rams, who I think you can make a legitimate argument, are peaking right now. They are playing their best. Look at the Rams' last three games. And this is after they lost to Philly. The Rams lost to Philly. After they lost to Philly, it was that uh, Sunday night football game where they just played bad. But after that game where they, lo- where they lose to Philly, they play. Arizona Cardinals win 31-9. San Francisco 49ers. They win 48-32. Then they play the Dallas Cowboys in the divisional round. And they win 30-22. And that's when they rushed for over 200 yards. And they kind of dismantled the Cowboys. And at one point, they were up by two touchdowns. Really won the game handily, even though the score ended up being a little bit closer than it should have. But they dominated the football game. Here's the most impressive thing that the Rams did. They shut down the run. Nadamakin Sue, Aaron Donald in the middle of the defense. Ezekiel Elliott, in my opinion, the best pure rushing running back in the NFL. I'm not talking about pass catching any of that. You can make an argument for Todd Gurley there. I'm talking about just running in between the tackles. It's Zeke Elliott, especially behind that huge Dallas Cowboys offensive line. Guess how many yards Zeke Elliott had against the Rams last week? He had 47 rushing yards. Well, you might say, oh, Daryl, you know, you know, you probably didn't get a lot of carries. No, Ezekiel Elliott got 20 carries. Ezekiel Elliott, 20 carries, only 47 yards? That's crazy. That's unfathomable. That's crazy to think. Here's my prediction. The Rams, they will shut down the rushing attack, the rushing attack of Alvin Kamara and Mark Ingram. They will shut down that rushing attack. Concerning neither of them reached over 100 yards rushing individually against the Philadelphia Eagles, probably because the Philadelphia Eagles have a dominating defensive tackle and Fletcher Cox. The Rams have two. The Rams are peaking at the right time. The Saints are not peaking. Now we see when the Rams, when, when the Saints are playing their best, they're better than the Rams. But now the Rams are playing at their best and the Saints, you know, and are flatlining a little bit. They're flatlining a little bit. I think the Rams are going to take this game. And then I would also, and this is the biggest reason, analysis aside, this is the biggest reason why I'm rooting so heavily for the Rams to win. It's because of this. You know, Sean Payton was talking a bit of crap about uh, Marcus Peters after the Saints uh, kind of dominated, like I said, dominated the Rams. And he said, you know, Marcus Peters, cornerback for the Rams, was the match we wanted. This is what Marcus Peters said after that game. Were you aware, Sean Payton said after that New Orleans game, he said in that last sequence, we wanted... They got the matchup they wanted mm-hmm. with you on him one Tell on Sean Payton, keep talking that shit. We're going to see him soon. You feel me? Fair enough. Yeah, because I like what he was saying on the sidelines, too. So tell him, keep talking that shit, and I hope you see me soon. You feel me? And then we're going to have a good little, nice little bowl of gumbo together. <laughs> Marcus Peters is an OG. Mar- Marcus Peters, <laughs> we're going to have a big bowl of gumbo together. You know, revenge is a dish best served cold. Uh, revenge is a dish best served cold at... Uh, I just want to see the Rams beat the Saints and see what Marcus Peters has to say. Because you know Marcus Peters is going to say something off the wall that's very quotable, that's going to be a great soundbite, and it's going to be funny. So that's really, you know, at the end of the day, that's my bottom line reason what I want to see. But also, I want to see the Rams versus the Patriots in the Super Bowl. And and here's the reason why. I think there's a lot of commonalities from the Patriots. The last couple years, the teams the Patriots have played in the Super Bowl. A couple years ago, 2016, they play Atlanta. Right, Atlanta has that quarterback MVP caliber season, you know, that young flying around defense against the Patriots, right? Kind of similar to the Rams. Jared Goff, young quarterback MVP caliber season, you you know, you have the talent on the defensive side, you know, flying around, kind of like that. Same with the Eagles, Nick Foles. Then you look at the other parts, you know, you have Fletcher Cox, you have that young, talented defense, Malcolm Jenkins. So I think it's kind of gone along with the battles that we've seen between Tom Brady and Bill Belichick and the other NFC teams. Now, Tom Brady and Bill Belichick are 1-1, one one, beat the Falcons, lose to the Eagles. We're going to see if, you know, the Rams end up being, you know, kind of that rubber match of which one wins. If that my, my predictions come to fruition, which I do believe they will. Now, coming next, after the break on Barbara's Sports Talk, we're going to have my friend, Ben Karen, host of the Sports Squabbler podcast on. Talk a little college football with Ben, maybe a little bit of NFL, get his predictions for the weekend. Kind of next after the break on Barbershop Sports Talk.
Oh, we're back with Barbara Sports Talk. Unfortunately, we will not have Ben Karen on. Ben has a uh, stomach virus, has a little bit of strep throat. Ben isn't feeling well. So we're gonna get we're gonna give Ben some time off so he can recuperate. Ben Karen hosts the Sports Quadrant Podcast, usually rather guest on my show. Can't come on. Hopefully we can get him on next week. Always love Ben's takes, always love Ben's opinion. Get well, Ben. I hope Ben gets well. Uh but I got some backups planned for you. You know, the show must go on. I think Queen said that in one of his songs. So we can talk about this. Keep talking about the NFC Championship game. Uh, you know, I think the NFC AFC Championship game, they're both going to be iconic in their own right. They're going to be spectacular games. We're going to see Brady versus Mahomes. That's going to be a great duel. Then we got Sean McVay versus Sean Payton. Drew Brees versus Jared Goff. And Marcus Peters. Now... I don't have this clip for you, but there's a <laughs> clip of Marcus Peters. I just saw it on Bleacher Report, and Marcus Peters is just like, they're asking him, you know, how would you sum up your season? And Marcus Peters is like, it don't matter. It don't matter. It don't matter. He's just, just like, the season ain't done yet. season ain't done yet. And I'm like, Marcus Peters, that brother. I love Marcus Peters. See, Marcus Peters is funny. And Mar- See, the thing, Marcus Peters is dangerous because you never know what he's going to say in front of the media. Marcus Peters says what is on his mind. He says, he, Marcus Peters says what is on his mind. I'm going to, I'm going to play the sound by the Marcus Peters sound by one more time. I just love it. Were you worried? Sean Payton said after that New Orleans game, he said in that last sequence, we wanted, they got the matchup they wanted mm-hmm. with you on him. One Tell on Sean one. Payton, keep talking that We're going to see him soon. You feel me? Fair enough. Yeah. Cause I like what he was saying on the sidelines too. So tell him, keep talking that and I hope you see me soon. You feel me? And then we're going to have a good little, nice little bowl of gumbo together. See, Marcus Peters ain't the one now. Marcus Peters ain't the one. Marcus Peters said, you by the call, but I ain't sent for you. See, Marcus Peters is not that boy. Marcus Peters is not that man. He not trying to be trifled with. And here's my prediction. When the Rams win, we're going to see a Marcus Peters moment similarly to how we had a Richard Sherman moment in about 2015, if I believe so, when the Seattle Seahawks beat the San Francisco 49ers. For all of you who don't remember, it was when Richard Sherman batted down the Colin Kaepernick pass. This is what Richard Sherman had to say after the game. Well, I'm the best corner in the game. When you try me with a sorry receiver like Crabtree, that's the result you're going to get. Don't you ever talk about me. We will get a very good soundbite from Marcus Peters. You know, funny, we got two corners that like to talk a lot of trash. We will get a funny soundbite from Marcus Peters. And if they lose, we're going to get a soundbite from Marcus Peters, too. Marcus Peters is going to be like, yo, we'll see you next year, Sean. We'll see you next year, Sean. I love Marcus Peters. Marcus Peters is that boy. I love Marcus Peters. Marcus Peters is coming my favorite player in the NFL to listen to. Love listening to Marcus Peters' press conference. Now, I want to talk about basketball. I want to segue to the NBA. See, James Harden's has just been playing at a spectacular level. He's been playing at levels that we haven't seen in the NBA in a very long time. Uh... I was just looking up, uh, looking at this last morning, and James Harden's averaging 35.4 points per game. Now, James Harden isn't doing this super efficiently. He's shooting 43% from the field. But what is making it spectacular, and I always say this, you know, sometimes efficiency doesn't matter because he's taking 30 shots a game, which is a skill in itself. People always said after Kobe scored 60 against the Utah Jazz a couple years ago, about three or four years ago, you know, oh my God, the Jazz let him score. It was like Kobe's farewell tour. Well, listen, if you put up 30, 40, 50 shots in an NBA game, that is a skill. That is not easy to do. There's a reason why Cal Corver has never took 30 shots a game. You want to know why Cal Corver has never took 30 shots a game? Because he can't get 30 shots up. It takes a lot of work to create your own shot. Not only that, James Harden's playing 45 minutes per night. He's giving you 30 a night. That's hard to do. Carrying the whole team on your back. James Harden's averaging 35.4 points per game. He's playing at the highest offensive level I've seen. He's getting to the rim. He's getting his three-point shots up. And he's knocking down his free throws. And he's getting calls from referees. He's playing at the highest offensive level I've seen since Steph Curry in his 2016 year that he won the unanimous MVP. When Steph Curry was dropping three-point shots all the way from half court. And I was looking at other players that kind of had high caliber offensive seasons in that type of vein. Kobe Bryant. My man's Kobe Bryant. 2007, after Kobe left Shaq, or Shaq left Kobe, actually, they went after the divorce, and uh, Shaq was traded to the Miami Heat. Kobe was on his own for a couple years. They were always competing for about the 7th or 8th seed. 
Kobe averaged 35.4 points per game, just like Harden is right now. High level of offensive basketball. And Michael Jordan averaged 37.1 points per game. Michael also averaged 8 points, 8 rebounds. Michael's the GOAT, and don't at me on that one. <laughs> but James Harden is playing at offensive levels that we haven't seen since those three guys. Those three guys. That is the type of level James Harden is playing at offensively. Offensively. Now, when you look at James Harden's pace, pace, 40-point games from MVPs. And this was extraordinary when I saw this stat. So LeBron, 2013, his MVP season. LeBron's 2013 NBA, NBA, uh, NBA MVP season in 2013. Guess how many 40-point games LeBron had? He only had one. In 2014, Kevin Durant won the MVP. Guess how many 40-point games Kevin Durant had? He had 14. Pretty good. In 2015, when Steph Curry won MVP, Steph Curry only had three 40-point games. In 2016, when Steph won his unanimous MVP, Steph Curry had 13. In 2017, when Russell Westbrook won MVP, he had 18 40-point games. And James Harden, last year in 2018, when he won MVP, had 11 40-point games. Guess how many 40-point games James Harden has already? And I'll also remind you all, we haven't even reached the halfway point of the NBA season yet, since the halfway point's probably after All-Star Weekend. James Harden has 14 40-point games. He has more 40-point games than LeBron had in the season, than Steph Curry had in the season, and both his NBA MVP years, including one of which was a unanimous MVP year. He has more 40-point games than he did last year. James Harden had more 40-point games than he did last year in James Harden's MVP season. And he's tied with Kevin Durant in, the mo in terms of 40-point games, which Kevin Durant had for a whole season. And James Harden's not even halfway there yet. He will shatter all of them. He will shatter all of them. James Harden, I wouldn't be surprised at the level he's playing right now, he could pull a Kobe and score 81 points per game. And here's why I think that's possible. Let's remember, when Kobe scored 81, which is why I think it's more impressive than if James does, Kobe was a mid-range jump shooter. James Harden is a three-point shooter. Last time I checked, three is more than two. James Harden gets to the line at a at a high rate, at a high rate. 10 free throws a game, easy. Sometimes he'll get 20. James Harden has had more free throws attempted than some teams. And then we look at their offensive system. James Harden, Mike D'Antoni, fast-paced, up-tempo, three-point shots, push the, push the break, seven seconds or less offense, built for stat stuffing. Kobe Bryant, Phil Jackson, triangle offense, slow the ball down. Get it to your bigs. High post play. Get the mid-range game going. A system. Not just run and gun. It's a system. And then we look at the NBA. It's just a lot more wide open right now in 2018. In 2019, excuse me. In 2019 than it was in 2007 when Kobe Bryant played. Because of the advent of the spread pick and roll, especially guards. Now guards are putting up extraordinary numbers. Russell Westbrook averaged 30, 10, and 10 his MVP year. James Harden's having 35 points per game right now. It's just the nature of the game. Kobe, it, it wasn't built like that in 2007. It wasn't. James Harden can easily score 81 points per game. And if he doesn't score 81, James Harden gets 75. He can get close. And I guarantee you, he will get close. Especially as the playoff race starts getting tighter and tighter towards the end of the season. And... They're going to have to rely on James to get up 40 shots a game. They might even have to rely on him to get up 50 shots a game. Because they're going to try. James Harden ain't missing the playoffs. He ain't missing the playoffs. And he's going to have to play at that type of extreme offensive level for the Houston Rockets to win in advance and even advance in the postseason. Now I'm waiting to see what James Harden is able to do in the postseason, if he can play like this in the postseason. But right now, I will give all the props in the world to James Harden. James Harden is playing at the highest offensive basketball playing at the highest level of offensive basketball I have ever seen in my lifetime watching basketball. And that spans about 19 years, since 2010. He's playing at a higher level than Steph Curry did in 2016. What James Harden's doing is, quite frankly, amazing. Amazing. Now, before we get the show, uh, uh, show, show done, uh, I want to give some thanks again. Sam. Sam48 for coming on the show. Really appreciate it on Sam's end. Hope to have Sam on again. I really want to emphasize that. Loved having you on, Sam. Uh, next week on Barbershop Sports Talk, we are going to have a very special guest. 
Jason Kersey. He's an Oklahoma beat writer, covers the Oklahoma Sooners for the football team. Going to talk to him about Kyler Murray, Jalen Hurts, uh, just transferred over a lot of big stuff. But I want to thank you all for listening to this episode of Barbershop Sports Talk.